Welcome to the Build and Beyond podcast. This is where we share trends and knowledge and cool tools that just might help take some bricks off your back. If you're looking for insight into the built and natural environment, and well, beyond, this is the place. If you're in the federal space and want to drive innovation, we have some thoughts. Transportation, asset management, water infrastructure concerns keeping you up at night? We have guests who'll talk about that too. We're all in this together, so let's get to it. Welcome everybody to our biosolids episode of Built and Beyond podcast. Today we're going to be talking about biosolids, including gaining some insight into global trends, discussing some of the key challenges and opportunities faced by the sector. Biosolids production continues to grow as we increase connectivity to our sewers, populations increase, environmental production level increases, standards of living improve, and our industry grows. Biosolids continue to become a critical part of wastewater process. If managed efficiently and effectively, it can aid in performance of the wastewater process, reduce costs and carbon impacts as attributed to the wastewater treatment process. Biosolids contain valuable nutrients, micronutrients, and carbon. They also contain contaminants and micropollutants, which must be managed to ensure safety to human health and the environment. All right, joining me today are Rick Lancaster, Global Bioresources Director, and Tyler Hewitt, U.S. Water Market Lead. Rick, Tyler, why don't you take a couple of minutes to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Rick Lancaster. I'm the Global Bioresources Director. Uh, my background is 36 years in the water industry. Um, my, my former roles are Senior Operations Director for Wastewater and Biosolids Systems and Strategy Management uh, within the sector. Tyler? Uh, yes, my name is Tyler Hewitt. I serve as Atkins U.S. Water Market Lead. I have 25 years of experience uh, in the utility industry, uh, predominantly in consulting engineering, uh, involved in a myriad of design projects, water, wastewater, uh, distribution, and collection systems. I'm also uh, heavily involved in the management of bioresources uh, and will be serving as the Southeast Biosolids Association's uh, inaugural president. Great. Well, thanks for that. Um, so let's start talking about biosolids. Biosolids, certainly not a new topic and definitely not new to Atkins. Uh, Rick, what are some of the key global trends that you're seeing and witnessing? I think at the moment we're witnessing a paradigm shift in the sector uh, with, with, I guess, a mixture, an equal mixture of challenges and opportunities for, for that sector. So um, the key kind of call outs would be things like resilience. So we're hearing this a lot. So we work as we said previously, across the world. And we, we speak to a lot of utilities, we speak to a lot of technology providers, the markets and the regulators. And resilience is definitely something that's coming to the fore with that, particularly after the pandemic and now more recently with the trouble that we're seeing in, in Europe, that people not being able to get access to resources and to ensure that they've got sustainable su supplies of nutrients and water to grow crops and to feed their populations is becoming a real, real issue for a lot of people to consider. Environmental policy, so we're seeing a real strengthening of that across uh, water, air and land. So uh, that whole kind of circularity piece, zero waste, enhanced aquatic and atmospheric environments is something that we're, we're really seeing. And it's understanding the tensions within that, that will influence biosolid strategies moving forward. We're seeing a, an emergence of consideration of more pull than push with, with regulatory frameworks. So what I mean by that is less of the things you can't do and more, more targets and drivers to, to enable uh, resource recovery and extraction of value from, from wastewater uh, to get the same ultimate means. We have 
seen lots of unintended consequences from uh, setting standards and targets in one sector without considering the impact on those other sectors. And this is particularly with things like source control, where we're not seeing uh, source control of certain contaminants, which are then working their way down into the system and be becoming an issue that needs to be managed and, and, and causing issues for the reuse of some of the products. We're recognising that there's a need to adapt strategies, and I think this is, we're seeing this everywhere. So where we have countries where there's a, a predominance of recovery to agriculture to use the nutrients and micronutrients, we're seeing people realising that at some point they're going to need to step away from this, either because of nutrient management or concerns around micropollutants, whether that's the perfluoro compounds or antimicrobial resistance or even microplastics. So there is beginning to be that, that understanding that there's a diversification of strategies that are required and that then starts to talk to some of the new and emerging technologies around advanced thermal conversion and resource recovery that we're really beginning to have to get a greater understanding of. And carbon. We can't talk about these things without talking about carbon. There's a real recognition that bioresources managed in an efficient and effective manner has a massive opportunity to reduce the carbon impact of the wastewater industry and the water sector as a whole. So we really need to be minded by that and understand the challenges that we face and where the opportunities are to deliver different strategies which give us even greater benefits from from bioresources and i guess we can't we can't miss out things like systems thinking and thinking about uh, not just bioresources and biosolids on its own but the wider system in which we work and understanding where for example if we've got heat that can be recovered and used locally or whether we've got a need for energy sources or whether we've got a need for resources that can either be used internally within the wastewater business or externally with local communities. And then in some areas of the world, we're also looking at how we can combine the waste streams, whether that's through co-treatment, co-location or co-production of, of resources and energy. So there's, there's a huge amount going on in the world. And it's, it's a really, really exciting time to be involved in biosolids, Jeff. No, I mean, thanks for covering the global perspective, but Tyler, maybe what what do you kind of see going on in the U.S.? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I think uh, Rick has uh, excellent analysis and has framed the issues very well on the on the global scale, and and these certainly scale down to the U.S. Um, I think what we're seeing uh, on on the ground here is uh, a paradigm shift, and what I'd say our biosolids management strategies are. Conventionally, utilities have looked for the most economical and cheapest way to manage and dispose of their biosolids, often um, discharging into solid waste facilities or having a low level of treatment and land applying for, for various ag purposes. Uh, with the advent of, of micro constituents and, and other uh, emerging contaminants, and particularly PFAS, as well as some of the solids handling facilities limiting their ability to accept uh, dewatered cake from plants is forcing utilities to really rethink how they're going to manage their resources and predominantly in a more productive uh, and beneficial reuse way. So I think this takes effect on a couple. Uh, this, this, this looks a couple different ways. One, we're seeing more and more clients uh, required in increased conditioning of their biosolids. And what that means is we're putting out a cleaner, cleaner project product with nutrient-rich uh, that increases the beneficial applications in the marketplace, whether it be agricultural fertilizers uh, or composting or similar beneficial reuse activities. Also, uh, this is also driving technology in the space 
as uh, issues uh, surrounding PFAS, which is still evolving, uh, is forcing some of our utilities to look at more uh, destructive technologies uh, that can mitigate and or eliminate some of those concerns in their product going forward in, in the future. I think it's a time that we got to keep a close eye on regulatory decisions and certainly the importance of our professional organizations uh, and, our, and our community in this area. It's never been more important to be involved and, and to be vocal on these issues. One concern I, on, a, on a market level in the U.S. is who is going to bear the ultimate cost responsibilities for some of these impre- uh, increased regulations and technologies. And uh, your public and private utilities typically inherit these issues, uh, not necessarily create them. So active involvement uh, with our regulators, both on the state and federal level, is incredibly important so that future regulations that come out uh, do not place an undue burden on uh, our utilities, and more importantly, their ratepayers, which is is our day-to-day citizens. So I would agree with Rick that this is a very exciting time to be in this space. I've seen we're seeing a lot of uh, evolution uh, from a technology side as well as strategic thinking from a management side, and that is certainly some of the strengths that. Uh, the Atkins bioresource team uh, can provide to uh, clients now and in the future. I think you both raised some really interesting points on, you know, trends both globally and, you know, sort of locally here in our U.S. market. You know, Rick, you talked about, you know, the push, um, things, you know, driving things in different directions. Uh, I think you touched on that, you know, a little bit too. Let's delve a little bit deeper into that, you know, what sort of globally and uh, here in the U.S. market, are you both seen as uh, drivers in this emerging area? Yeah, more than happy to pick. Yeah, more than happy to pick up on that, Jeff. Um, I, I guess just before I do, I think just picking and, gro- and growing one of the points that Tyler made before. I think that, you know, we are working with uh, with a, a number of national strategies, and it, the the key point there is about collaboration between the regulator, the markets, the utilities. And the technology providers, and we've we've expanded that to academia as well, because it's really there are still some uncertainties with some of these different routes that we can that we can currently take, and we do need to work collaboratively to ultimately find a sustainable solution for bioresources management. And it's 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 absolutely clear that we need all parties to be uh, involved in that process. And I think it's a really good point, Tal. So I just wanted to add to that for a second. In terms of the the kind of drivers, so we've got the ones that we've we kind of all recognise and we've had historically. So you know the the metals, the pathogens, the uh, in some places the the eutrophication issues, so the nutrient management, and then you know those drivers around cost, incentivization, historic practice, and asset base and outlet and societal acceptance, which will range depending on where you are in in the world, I guess. But more recently, we're starting to see the evolution of some emerging concerns around the microplastics, uh, uh, antimicrobial resistance and the persistent organic pollutants, some of which uh, Tyler mentioned earlier on. But not just those kind of uh, more negative, challenging drivers, but we're also starting to see a real mixture of um, kind of more rounded environmental drivers and uh, for individual countries and states uh, to consider, and and I guess these these are different depending on where you are. So you know we can see things from ranging from net zero ambitions for the water sector, for example, through to resilience and uh, renewable energy generation as the key primary driver. And I think each one of these drivers that we see will ultimately potentially push a different answer. So if it's all about net zero carbon, 
and that's about the owned carbon footprint, you're likely to see companies wanting to produce lots and lots of energy, reduce the overall volume of the product they've got, and do that in the most cost-effective and efficient way they possibly can. Not necessarily focusing on the on the products and the products being used by somebody else means that they are likely to benefit from the carbon footprint rather than the, the water utility themselves. Whereas others are thinking about self-sufficiency and resilience and producing a, a, a product that's suitable for uh, land application and sustaining that land application to ensure that there's resilience in agriculture and that keeps the cost of agriculture uh, and food production as low as possible for the wider societal benefits of their individual country. So there is a real mixed bag across the world, and it very much depends on your local drivers. And I think it's a really important message is that not everyone's drivers are the same, and people will have the kind of the base control of pollution parameters, but then the choices that they can make based on a number of different drivers within their own organization, their own organization's ambition, their own organization's key topics will then determine what strategy ultimately you should be deploying within that business area. And you know, and I guess then check then testing those strategies against potential future environments and future worlds. Because we can kind of see the direction of travel. Uh, of the world with regard to energy and circularity and carbon and air emissions. And, you know, we can start to imagine what those worlds might look like. And having a driver now that gives you a strategy that doesn't align with possible future states is, is going to give you a short term view of what you need to deploy, which is fine if that's ultimately your ambition. You recognize that and you recognize that at some point in the future, you may need to adapt that strategy and then you manage triggers and understand what may trigger you to do something different within your system to move towards that, whether that's when a technology becomes better understood or whether a market becomes more viable and the economics of that market become more viable as things change in society. So hopefully that's kind of covered some of the drivers that I'm seeing around the world. And I'm I'm sure Tyler will have some more specific ones for the US. Yeah, thanks, Rick. I, I I really like how how Rick has framed this set. There is no one size solution for everyone. And that can be a little bit uh, concerning in some realms, depending on your point of view. But I think it really leads to an opportunity for creative thinking. Uh, And certainly what Rick and our global team is doing and, and somewhat in the U.S. as well is providing that creative, tailored thinking to specific clients. One distinction I think we have in the U.S. that is not quite uh, the same, let's say, uh, in Europe and other places, is we have thousands of public and private utilities here in the United States. And to maximize uh, beneficial reuse opportunities, resource recovery opportunities, uh, you really need to scale. So what we are seeing is uh, that's not a problem in in our large urban areas, our large cities, you know, uh, the D.C. area or Atlanta or Southern California, per se. But in your suburban areas and your further outlying areas, that can be a challenge because it's from a scale standpoint. So what we're seeing is more regionalization of these opportunities and or clients considering regionalization of these opportunities. So combining their collective resources to provide further benefit and addressing these challenges that that Rick so eloquently spoke. I think uh, the work that Atkins is doing in the UK uh, is is very apropos and uh, will will bear a lot of fruit uh, for our future efforts in the U.S. As we talked about drivers, um, you know that kind of leads into you know the direction that the 
you know, the market's going, creating opportunities, and also with opportunities comes challenges. You know, Rick, could you talk a little bit more about those? Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. And, you know, Tyler's raised some really good points about resource recovery, which I'll touch on in, in, in a moment. But, you know, some of the challenges that we're facing, we're seeing a lot of concerns around the longevity, the sustainability of the recovery to agriculture route in a lot of countries. So um, in Australia, for example, they're already uh, in consultation on regulations to apply uh, limit values to certain organics, and they're likely to include microplastics at some point in the UK and Europe. We're looking at similar pace with microplastics and micropollutant limit values for recovery to agriculture. And I know in the US, there's been some states where it's already been banned because of concerns over the forever chemicals. And there are conversations around how those are going to be administered across across the US. So there are challenges and we do need to start thinking about how we address them, what alternative strategic approaches might look like. And I think there's a big conversation here around whether we regionalize or whether we do local. And I think, again, this comes down to what your local drivers are, what facilities you've got, how close they are. Uh, where where they are in relation to your outlet, all of these kind of things start to come in. But it is a conversation that's beginning to really pick up um, a momentum, particularly with the advanced thermal conversion technologies, which the predominance of those that are on the market at this moment tend to be uh, modular, uh, a smaller scale facility. And some of the work we've already done with a, a number of water companies has looked at whether we do that in big regional centres or if we do that in a local aspect based on operations, carbon footprint, emissions, et cetera. And it's not as cut and dry and as clear as it used to be, potentially with large advanced anaerobic digestion systems like thermal hydrolysis or biophilus or any of these other technologies that are out there in the market where you would massively benefit from the economies of scale. So that's quite interesting that you then start to look, well, you could actually reduce your transportation costs, your movement of biosolids and all of the, uh, all of the effort that goes with that from that perspective. I guess the, the challenge within this kind of new technology market is that there's a huge range of technologies. Uh, they all do something slightly different. They all give you slightly different outputs. They all office, they all uh, operate slightly differently at slightly different temperatures, slightly different pressures, with some with certain chemicals and catalysts required and others without. And you end up with different products. So you'll end up with biochars, biocrudes, syngases, bio-oils, all these wonderful things that we're probably not as used to in this sector. And depending on how you operate these technologies, you'll get different things. So you can increase the amount of syngas and bio-oil or reduce the amount of biochar. And then what we don't have is established markets for some of these outputs. Um, so this isn't just another type of biosolids. This isn't a different type of digest A, a class A, a class B, or an exceptional quality. We're now talking about a fundamentally different product. So we're talking about something that could be used in uh, construction or something that could be used as a pigment in, uh, in inks, or it could be used as a fuel source, or it could be used as a carbon sequestrator. So there's loads of different things we can do with this. We've even got things like BioCrude, which is ultimately a replacement for oil refinery oils with a lower carbon impact. So there's a massive range. Um, those markets aren't necessarily as well understood, and therefore there is a risk to the organizations in stepping into these spaces because ultimately biosolids isn't a choice. It keeps coming. You have to do something with it, and you have to manage it sustainably and cost-effectively. As Tyler mentioned, the customers earlier on ultimately want value for what they do. So we need to be sure about what we do in this space, and we need to do, there's still work to do to understand what those markets look like, what the best combination of these technologies are within the existing flow sheets of our customers, 
and how best to regulate them because the regulations don't necessarily align with these new outputs that we're producing uh, and maybe need they, they that needs to be reflected upon and there's a lot of work going on in places like australia and europe and there's a number of eight advanced firmware conversion technologies who are based in the US who have already got facilities in the US and are beginning to produce products that go out to market. So it's it's a really, really exciting sector with lots and lots of opportunity, but equally there's a huge number of challenges. And then if you build on that and start talking about resource recovery, it's a really exciting area. And the more academics I speak to and the more research that's done across the world, we're getting more and more and more and more things that can be produced from wastewater and biosolids. Now, I guess the challenge here is that just because you can doesn't necessarily mean you should. Because if there's no market for it, there's no desire from the market, there's no pull from the market, there's no societal interest in you producing something from wastewater or biosolids that then goes into the market, then there's no point in producing it in the first place. If you can't produce the scale, if the economics don't work out, then why would you do it? And it's, it's really starting to understand that. And that's where people may need to come together uh, and do more of a, a regionalization, a centralization thing to make the, the scale worthwhile to put the investment in, to produce something of, of significant consequence. And it's, it's, it's also about the understanding that these things exist. So last year in the UK, we ran out of CO2 for our food industry because a couple of fertilizer factories stop production because we were having problems with resilience of getting the the raw materials into the UK with all of the issues that we're having with COVID, et cetera. But we hadn't really run out of CO2. The water industry in the UK produce a huge amount of biogas and the amount of CO2 that's in that biogas was more than the CO2 that we'd allegedly ran out of. But nobody had any idea it was there outside the water sector or any desire to use it because it's basically produced from wastewater. So we've got to kind of breach these hurdles and understand what that looks like. And that's where we really do need the pull. That's the opportunity. But, the, but we've got to bring industry and society with us. Otherwise, we are going to get challenges for markets where um, your product would be deemed to be of a lower value because part of it's from waste as opposed to something that's from virgin materials. Yeah, I would agree with Rick. I think he, he captured uh, uh, the overall opportunities available. And some of the challenges, what we're doing about it. Uh, you know, as said before, I, I think uh, the the rising landfill costs here in the U.S. and conventional disposal strategies are, are is forcing technology, uh, as well as the drive for resilience and carbon net neutrality, is really uh, creating opportunities, and particularly in the resource recovery space, whether it's energy recovery or or product recovery. Um, uh, very innovative work that uh, I think we'll see in the future. And it's really, uh, and to me, this is exciting because it's transforming our, our, our wastewater infrastructure into from kind of uh, something you had to manage and deal with uh, that uh, was a headache to some folks in, in their eyes to a opportunity uh, to really uh, increase your system's resilience, uh, be sustainable, and, and really just be a good steward with what we're given with. So, uh very exciting future going forward. Uh, a lot of space for creative thinking and technology to play. And uh, I'm excited for uh, the next 10 to 20 years in this space. Another great episode. Thanks, Rick and Tyler, for your important insights on this critical and emerging part of the wastewater process. Join us next time as we discuss beneficial use of dredge sediment and why it matters to you. 